called to the work of restoration. And so have you. It's not meant to be done alone. We need each other to be all in and committed to the task. Because in the end, we will all be stronger and more secure. The time has come for this wall to be restored. It's time to rebuild the wall of faith. Good morning, church. Oh, come on. You got to do better than that. My goodness. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. It's good to see all of you here at the Lancaster campus today. It's good to be with you in Myerstown at our Myerstown campus today. And then also those of you who are watching online, we're excited. I am so fired up to share God's word with you today, friends. This uh, message that God has uh, given us today is something that I pray that we're all going to embrace wholeheartedly today. So go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. And I also want to really encourage you to pull out your Mission Church app and take, uh, take a moment to find the sermon notes that are in the Mission Church app. We're going to reference those quite a bit today, so you want to have those ready for you. Uh, we are in the middle of a series called Restored, Rebuilding the Walls of Faith. And the goal of this series is for each of us to restore the walls of faith in our lives so that we can accomplish the work of faith in our lifetime. Let me say that again. The goal of this series is for us to restore the walls of faith in our lives so that we can accomplish the work of faith in our lifetime. And speaking of work, today we're going to learn from this passage that one of the key resources that we need if we're going to work to build or rebuild anything is power. Can you say power? Power. power? That's right. We need power to accomplish anything, to build anything. How do I know this? Well, I know this because I've, I've been for the past month in the middle of a project of finishing my basement, of building walls in, in my basement. And that project has made very apparent to me all the areas of my body in which I lack power. I, and, and that is evidenced by the uh, soreness that I feel in my muscles at the end of a day of working down in that basement. Let me tell you guys, this job, this job of finishing the basement for a guy who works a desk job is one that requires more power physically than what I have. And, and, and it has given me quite the appreciation for the strength of the folks who work in the construction industry. You guys are rock stars, and you're strong, and I'm super grateful for my desk job. <laughs> That's how God has created me, and I'm not apologizing for it. And I've learned a lot through this last month about construction, about building things that I didn't know before. I probably should have paid attention in shop class when I was younger or whatever they call it, technical arts today. Um, but I've learned a lot. And one of the things that I've learned is that it would be a crying shame if I was to construct a wall and then it would end up in the wrong place. And, 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 and I would put an electrical box in and then wire it up improperly. 
Or, or I would hang a piece of drywall over my head only to have it fall down because I didn't do it the right way. Friends, if we exert strength for something, we need, we need to do it the right way. We need a plan in order for that to happen. And, and what I've learned is that, w- that what makes the power and the energy that I expend actually effective is the blueprint that I submitted to the township weeks before this project began. See, without that plan, there would be no progress. You might even say that the power was in the plan because that plan directed our energy to all the right places. And just as that blueprint has produced the desired results, I hope, at least, I hope no drywall falls down on us when we're down there, Uh, but just as that blueprint has produced the desired results in this construction project, the Word of God produces powerful results in God's people as the construction project of restored faith takes place. Friends, God's word has power. Can you say amen to that? God's word is powerful. And in your notes today, you're going to see a little chart in there that says the power of God's word. And you'll see, if you, if you look at that, you'll see that God's word has power over lies, power over nations, power over demons, Power over death, power over nature, power over bondage. It has power for salvation, for healing. God's word is perfect, sure, right, and pure. It's unfailing, living, active, sharp, everlasting, and life-giving. Friends, it is evident from this list that when God speaks, things change. When God speaks, things change. I got to tell you, that song that we sang this morning about the authority of God's word changing things just fired me up. We're going to be singing that song for a while, friends. So get your voices ready. And as we look at Nehemiah 8, we're going to see that the reading of God's word results in some very important responses and changes in God's people. See, friends, that is why Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem from Babylon. That's why he led the people back. Remember what Pastor Jerry said last week, that that they accomplished the rebuilding of the wall in 52 days. That's quite the feat. And what does Nehemiah do? He's like, okay, it's done. He doesn't throw a big celebration for the rebuilding of the wall. Why? Because he knows that That was the secondary purpose for why he came. And what we're going to see in this passage today is the primary reason that he came. Friends, today the focus is taken off of the wall and onto the word. Today the focus is taken off of the physical and it's on the spiritual. Today we're going to see the beginnings of the restored faith of God's people. So we're going to look at it and we're going to find three critical responses to God's word that are going to be present as faith is restored. So we're going to uh, look at Nehemiah chapter 8, but I want to start right before that in verse 73 of chapter 7, just the, the ending part of it. And it says, when, and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And and, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. 
that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood six men with hard names on his right hand and seven men with other names on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also, all of these guys, who are the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Point number one today for us for us is that we must, as these people did, acknowledge God's power in worship. We must acknowledge God's power in worship. So let's just, again, recap what has, where these people are and what has taken place. As I just said, the, the wall around Jerusalem gets rebuilt in 52 days, and it's completed on the 25th day of the month of Elul in the Hebrew calendar. And what we see here is on the first day of the seventh month, which is just five days after that. So five days after the wall is completed, they gather for what this, what this day is known as, as the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. Leviticus 23 talks to us about the Feast of Trumpets, and it says, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So this is a festival day. This is a day for rejoicing. This is a day for honoring the Lord. And you can see that it happens just five days after the people complete the wall. They are quick to get to the business of getting to God's word and worshiping God, which is instructive for us. And they also call for Ezra. Now, who is Ezra? This is the first time that we've seen him in the book of Nehemiah, but for those of you who've been in the faith for a long time, you probably remember that there's a book of the Bible called Ezra that comes right before the book of Nehemiah that we're studying today. And in, uh, and in that book, we understand, and even from this passage, that we understand that Ezra is a scribe and a priest who 14 years before Nehemiah came, he led a whole group of people back to Jerusalem from Babylon, okay? And so he's been in Jerusalem for these last 14 years. And Ezra 7, 6 says, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, it also says that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. He was, an anointed, he was an anointed teacher of God's word. 
Ezra 7.10 says, Ezra had set his heart to do three things. Number one, to study the law of the Lord. Number two, to do it. He didn't just read it. He didn't just learn about it. He actually applied it to his life. And then thirdly, he taught those statutes and rules in Israel. So for these last 14 years, Ezra has quietly been teaching God's word to the people. You can see, uh, you can see the distinction between Nehemiah and, and Ezra if you see Nehemiah as sort of the civic leader of the people. And, and Ezra is the spiritual leader of the people. So they know, because he's been teaching God's word to them all these years, that they must call for him so that they can understand the law and so that he can read it to them. And I, I, wanna, I want us to look at two main things that these people do in this chapter, at the beginning of this chapter, that is, that, that are instructive for us. And the first one is this. The first one is this. They display unity. These people display unity. Well, how do, how do we see that in the passage? Well, look at all the times in this first paragraph where it says, all the people. All the people. Verse 1. All the people gathered as one man. So we got to ask the question, how many people were there? Most commentators will tell us and agree that there were, there were between 30 and 50,000 people at this gathering. That's a lot of people. And all of them, as one man, come and ask Ezra to read the law. I think that that's evidence of unity. Verse 2 and 3 says it wasn't just the men who came who would normally be the ones who would come to something like this, but it was the men, the women, and all those who could understand. They brought their children along with them. Verse 3 says all the people were attentive. Verse 5 says all the people three times. Verse 6 says all the people answered amen, amen. They all agreed with what the law was saying. Friends, the unity that they're displaying, they're all doing this. All 30 to 50,000 of them are doing all of these things together. Friends, that is incredible. That is a miracle. And I, just to put it in context, if we got a gathering of 30 to 50,000 people in our community together right now, do you think that they would all agree about anything? I don't think that they would. So what we see here is a work of God. I think Philippians 2.2 describes what's happening here. It says that they were of the, that in Philippians, it says the people there could complete Paul's joy by what? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I think if Paul would have been there to see this gathering, he would have, his joy would have been complete. So how do they display this unity? We've already talked a little bit about it, but let's look at what they do together in, in some detail. And, and friends, let's find instruction in this for us in how we can display our unity when we come together in worship. Number one, they take initiative. They take initiative. They come to Ezra and ask him to read the law to them. It wasn't like the leaders of the people said, hey, guys, what, what, do, we need for the, what do we need the people to do? No, it's the people who come to the leadership and say, we're hungry. We want to hear God's word. Would you declare it to us? Secondly, we see them spending time. They spend time. 
How do we know that? Well, he read from early morning until midday in verse 3. Friends, that's at least six hours. So you guys got time today? I'm kidding. We're not going to go that long, I don't think. Thirdly, they displayed their unity by paying attention. Are, are you paying attention? Okay, good. I, heard, I saw one person go like this. That's great. It says in verse 3, they gave their full attention. And so it begs the question of us, what distracts us when we're here together on Sunday mornings? You know, I told you to pull out your phone or your device and pull out the Mission Church app. And you know what happens on those little devices that we have? Notifications. Anybody ever get distracted by those? Anybody ever receive a text message? No, I, I don't believe that anybody would ever look at a text message during a worship service. I know. No. Guilty. Guilty. Hey, did you know that there's a button on your phone on the screen probably that you can turn those off? Maybe, maybe, maybe we could do that when we come to church on Sunday morning so that we could stay focused on the Word of God. How about sleepiness? I know I, I can be tired on Sunday mornings. It helps me when I get a good night of rest, when I get to bed early or I get up early enough to come and pay attention to God's Word. Hey, is there somebody sitting next to you who has bad breath? Here, give them a breath mitt. If that's a distraction to you, come prepared to mitigate that distraction. Maybe you're a distraction to somebody else. Whatever it is, friends, think ahead and do your best to stay fully engaged because God's word is worth it. God's word is that important for us to stay dialed in. And speaking of thinking ahead, these people came prepared. That was the next way that we see them being unified in this worship time. That, how do we know that? Because in verse 4, it says that they constructed a platform. Now, that couldn't have been, just been done in a snap. It would have taken some time because there were 13, uh, 14 men standing on that platform. It had to be reinforced. It, it would have taken some time to make sure that that would uphold all that weight. But they had to do it in preparation for this time. And this platform is also a symbol that, fifthly, they give respect to God's word. They give respect to God's word. They stand when God's word was being read. I loved how we stood this morning when Eric was reading God's word. We do that out of respect for his word, but they also raised Ezra up on the platform. He was standing above the people. It says he was above all the people. And friends, this does have a practical purpose, right? It's gonna be very difficult for us to hear 30, 30 to 50,000 people all together if the person who's speaking is down in the midst of them. Raising them up helps them to hear, but that's not the only reason that they do this. I think they have another purpose behind it because they want to say, we're coming under the authority of God's word. It's above us. It is over us. God's word has authority. And that's a, a way for them to symbolize that they're coming under the authority of the truth. And so again, it begs the question of us, what is the attitude that we come to God's word with? Whether it's being preached, whether we're listening to it, whether we're reading it for ourselves. Are we coming with an attitude of like, hmm, 
I'll consider that. Let me think, let me think about whether I agree with that or not. Friends, we must come to God's word and say, yes, I agree. I am putting myself under the authority of God's word. And I don't think that there's too many people in this room or too many Christians in general who are going to read God's word and say, I don't agree with that. But I, but I know that what I do and that what probably some of us do is we'll read something that seems very difficult, that seems maybe just unusual to us, and we'll say, well, maybe it was like that for them back then, but today it's a little different. Or, or we'll rationalize, or, or we'll kind of, kind of explain it away, right? Like, well, what he meant was, friends, don't do that when you are under the teaching of God's word. Submit to its authority, even when it's hard. And that, I believe, will lead, a, lead to the last thing that we see in the people here is that they show reverence to God. They show reverence. Look, verse 6, Ezra blessed God. They all lifted their hands and they bowed down. Friends, who did they bow down to? They bowed down to God. Don't miss this. They bowed down to God as a response to the reading of his word. Friends, when we hear God's word preached, when we read the Bible, we are not worshiping a book. We are worshiping the God who wrote that book. We are worshiping the God who is revealed in the scriptures. And when we do that, when we read God's word, if it's not leading us to worship, then something is amiss. Worship and the word are a powerful combination. God's word should always stir up worship within us. And in turn, as we worship God, I believe that that whets our appetite for learning, for understanding more of who God is and what that word declares about him. And so when I come away from, uh, from singing a song or, or praying, I want to get into God's word and learn more about him and understand more of who he is, which really is the second way that we see these people acknowledging God's power in worship. They seek understanding. They seek understanding. The word understand or understanding is in this passage repeated four times, verses 2, 3, 7, and 8. And they call Ezra so that they can seek understanding of what God's word is saying. And it's not just the adults. It's the kids. It says all who could understand. These kids join in listening to God's word too. So some people would see this as a precedent for us to bring our kids into the worship service. And I gotta tell you, I would say amen to that. Bring kids to our worship service so that they can fellowship with the people of God, so that they can learn to understand God's word. But friends, I also see this as a great reason for us to have a children's ministry. I see this as a great reason for mission kids. Why? Because there are those in our church who can't understand what's going on here. 
They're not able to fully understand this form of communication or what's happening uh, in, in this time when we're together. Our Mission Kids ministry works hard to communicate the Bible at a level that our kids are going to understand. And I'm so thankful for that ministry in my children's life. Well, nevertheless, everyone who can understand is there. And it's a lot of people. We already said 30 to 50,000. So Ezra is standing on this platform. He's reading the law, right? And he has the help of these guys who are standing on his left and his right. And he also has the help of some other Levites who are in the midst of the people who are not standing on the platform, who are there to hear God's word. So let's talk about these men on the platform for a second. In verse 4, they help, they're there to help Ezra, to support him, to stand shoulder to shoulder with him. And, and maybe, maybe they're holding the scroll that Ezra is reading. If you look on the screen, it's probably a scroll that looks more something like that. It's not, it's not a book that we would hold in our hands, and it's not a scroll like he had an iPad and he was scrolling, right? It would have been a long scroll, and maybe the men on the right were holding it on this side, and maybe the men on the left were holding it on this side. And perhaps, if you think about it, do you think it would have been difficult for Ezra himself to read for six hours straight? To a, without amplification, to 30 to 50,000 people. Like maybe he needed a break every once in a while, and maybe these guys took over the reading when that happened. We don't know for sure, but perhaps that's some of how they helped him. They they, maybe they were delivering some of the teaching as well. But then there's this other group of men who's down in the midst of the people. What, is, what does it say about these Levites? It says in verse 7 and 8 that they help the people understand. They clearly read to the people and they gave the sense or the meaning of the text so that the people could understand. And we're not sure exactly how that was carried out, whether you know, Ezra would pause and then they would have little small group discussions or whether they, whether they were just talking and people would raise their hands. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that they were helping these people to understand the law that was being read to them. And friends, I can't help but, but find it fascinating the parallel between these two groups of men and our elders and small group leaders. Our elders stand shoulder to shoulder with Pastor Jerry and lead out in setting the direction and the doctrine of our church. They are skilled teachers of God's word. And, and when they meet together, they apply God's word and the wisdom therein to all the decisions that they make. They carry the burden of the teaching together. And our small group leaders, man, they are such wonderful men with their wives, so faithful, so gifted in helping our people understand, helping all of us understand the decisions that our elders make. They, they work hard to care for people, to shepherd people who are going through different, difficult things, and to pray for those under their care. 
And I think that this is, these are major reasons why we see a unified church here at Mission Church today. A church that's unified as we gather in worship and, 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 and a church that's actually growing in our understanding and desire for more of God's word. That is a beautiful thing, friends, that, that I believe that only can be accomplished by the power of God. That is evidence of God at work in our church. But that does not mean that all of that work comes easily. It's not an easy task. And we see that as the passage continues because when we grow in our understanding of God's word, the second response that we're going to have and that these people have is that they're going to be wrestling with the truth that we must, point number two, accept God's power through repentance. We must accept God's power through repentance. Look at verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So apparently what's happening is that as Ezra is reading the law to them, and they're growing in their understanding as, as the Levites are helping them to understand and explaining it to them. They realize that they have fallen miserably short of God's standard of holiness. Maybe Ezra was reading a passage like Deuteronomy 27 to them, which contains curses and blessings. And maybe he got to the, bless, uh, the cursing part that says, cursed are you if you dot, dot, dot if you break God's law. And then the people in that passage are, are called to respond amen. Remember how the people were saying amen in verse six? Were they saying amen to these curses and these blessings? We don't know exactly what was being read, but we do know that it caused the people to weep on a day, the Feast of Trumpets, that was supposed to be for rejoicing. Whatever part of the law it was, they wept because God was keeping, had kept his promise. He had kept his promise to discipline their disobedience. That's how they ended up in the land of exile, because they didn't obey God's law. The exile was the consequence. And friends, that is what the law is meant to do. That's what the law is meant to do. We see that, we know that because Galatians 3, 23 and 24 says, and I'm paraphrasing, that, God, that God's law actually imprisons us. And, 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 it, and it is a guardian over us. Well, that word guardian, in the Roman context where Galatians was written, the word used there represented a person in, in a Roman household who would have been a harsh disciplinarian over the children when they would step out of line, when they would break the law of the household or of the land. And Paul describes God's law as something like that in our lives. Ezra reads the law to these people, and it, and it causes grief in them. It wants, makes them want to cry, to, to weep, but we've got to ask, what kind of grief was it? 
What kind of grief was it? I think it was 2 Corinthians 7.10 kind of grief. I think it was godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Guess what? The repentance that they show in their grief, in their mourning, is something that actually leads them to understand the glory of the gospel. Friends, the grief of the law leads us to the glory of the gospel. It leads us to the glory of the gospel. So much so that Nezra, Nezra, I said that again, it's Nehemiah and Ezra. Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites tell the people not to mourn. As a a matter of fact, Nehemiah takes it one step further, not just don't mourn, but he says, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not only does he say don't mourn, but he says this is a time to celebrate. This is a time to understand that God has brought you back from exile. You've been forgiven. You've been restored. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And I think author James Hamilton talks about this joy of the Lord in a really helpful way. He says this, what does the joy of the Lord mean? This phrase refers to Yahweh's joy, Yahweh's good pleasure. What has Yahweh's good pleasure been? Yahweh is the covenant name for God that was revealed in Scripture. It has been to move the heart of Cyrus to allow them to return to the land and rebuild the temple. It has been to bring Ezra and Nehemiah back to the land to lead to the rebuilding of people and wall. And here's the key phrase. Yahweh's good pleasure, Yahweh's joy is for the people. God is for us. Yahweh has taken delight in restoring them to the land, causing the rebuilding of the temple and completing the project of the walls. The joy of the Lord is their strength because the joy of the Lord was to restore these people's faith. They find strength in that. Verse 11 says, it brings calm to the people. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And then the people respond, and and, and they went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The reason the people rejoice is because they understand God's Word. They understand that they were in exile because of their disobedience. They understand that God has brought them back from exile to restore their faith. They understand that he is a gracious and forgiving God who will never leave them or forsake them. They understand that God is for them. Friends, do you understand that? Do you understand that God is for you? Do you understand that he will never leave you or forsake you? Maybe there's someone here today who believes that your past sins can't be forgiven. Maybe there's someone here today who's living 
and wallowing in their sins of the past. Friends, this is God's word to you today. Colossians 2 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. Why? How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, you don't need to wallow in your past sins anymore. Anyone can be forgiven. God's grace and love is more powerful than any sin we would commit. Friends, God is for you. He delights to restore your faith. He rejoices when sinners repent. And he loves to see people believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is that gospel? That Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and then he died a sinner's death that was not for his own sins. You know whose sins it was for? It was for my sins, and it was for your sins. But then he rose from the grave on the third day, conquering sin, conquering death. And then 40 days later, he ascended to heaven and he sits right now, today, in this moment, he sits at the right hand of the Father. And you know what else he's doing? He has gone there to prepare a place for those who are gonna believe that message. Is he preparing a place for you there? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, in him alone? Or are you still wallowing in your sins of the past? Friends, today, you can be set free. You can be set free. How is it that we accept God's power through repentance? Romans 1.16 says the gospel, the good news that I've just declared to you, friends, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is God's promise. Believe the gospel. Turn away from your sin toward Jesus. That's what repentance is. And you will experience God's power in your life because he will come and he will dwell in your heart. And friends, this is what enables us to live out what we see these people experience as the third response to God's word. As their faith is being restored, which is point number three, access to God's power for obedience. They access God's power for obedience. Now, I got to say that when, the God, when I hear the gospel and when I think about the fact that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, sent his son to die for a nobody like me, I am overwhelmed. I am stunned. I am shocked that someone so high and lofty would look at someone, would pay attention to someone like me. And you know what that causes me to want to do? Well, first of all, it causes me to want to worship him. But it causes me to want 
to live for that God. It causes me to want to obey that God, to follow him wherever he would lead me to go. And that's exactly what's hap- what happens to these Jews in verse 13. It says, on the second day, now this is the day after the Feast of Trumpets, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Friends, they're seeking God. They want to know more about him. Honestly, to me, friends, it sounds like revival is about to break out. Or maybe it already has in these people's hearts. Verse 14, and they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Does that sound odd to anybody? Hey, guys, I want you to celebrate by leaving your homes and going and making a leafy branched tent for yourself and living in it for seven days. That's how we're going to celebrate. I don't know. That seems maybe a bit strange, but it's not because it's been declared for thousands of years that that's what they're supposed to do in this festival which is called the Feast of Booths. It's, again, from Leviticus, and it's a seven-day feast in which they build and then dwell in booths. And that feast is meant to remind the people of their wilderness wandering for 40 years that, was, that, that these people's ancestors had gone through. But it's not just to remind them of the fact that they were wandering in the wilderness. It's to remind them of how God protected them and provided for them during that wandering. And I find it fascinating that the Lord reminds them of that just after they've come back from their own wilderness wandering in exile. And what that says to me, it says sometimes the Lord allows us to experience the consequences of our sin so that he can get our attention. And he got their attention. This was very effective. Look at verse 16. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day of the feast, that he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Guys, these people absolutely crush. They absolutely go all in on obedience to these commands. They celebrate this feast, what it says there, like it hasn't been celebrated since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. That's almost a thousand years ago in their history. They go all in. They do it exactly the way that it was meant to be done, more so than it has ever been celebrated since that time. 
And what is it that they're being commanded to do? They're being commanded to celebrate. You know, so often we think of obedience to God in the negative, don't we? Like when, 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 when I read God's word and it says, do this, sometimes I think to myself, gee whiz, that's going to be really hard. Man, he just keeps telling me, don't do this, don't do that. But then I realize that obedience to God is for my good. Obedience to God is for our good, friends. So let's think of it in a positive light. Yes, sometimes it's difficult because our flesh rises up and doesn't want to obey. But if we will, but if we will commit to obeying God's word, then, then we're going to begin to live the way that God, that, that God intended life to be lived. And it's going to be a joy to us. It's going to be a positive thing, a good thing. Friends, obedience to God's word is freedom. He wants to set us free from the bonds of sin and death and captivity to those things that would, that would hinder us in our walk with God. Obedience to God is freedom. And I, I got to ask, friends, what would happen if we would unite today and we would begin to obey God the way these people did? What would happen, friends? What if we said, what, do, this, do this with me. Think, what is it in my life that I'm holding back right now from God? What is he calling me to do? How is he calling me to obey? Think of it. Ask him to reveal that to you. And then what if you say, you know what? That is it. That's it. I am done messing around with this thing. I'm done saying yes to my flesh and no to God. I'm saying yes to God today. Friends, that response in and of itself is something that God has to help us to do, but he desires that for us. He wants that for us. He's calling us to respond positively to obeying his word. What if we all united together in doing that today? What if we accepted the power of Jesus Christ in our lives and we lived lives of repentance not just a one-time thing, but every day. What if when we came together on Sundays in this place and in our small groups and wherever else we gather and we acknowledged the power of God's word and his glory in passionate worship, all in the spirit of bringing glory to God and God alone. Friends, I think people would look at Mission Church if we all did this together in unity. If we all did this together, they would look at Mission Church and they wouldn't say, hey, that's a nice church. That, 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 there's really nice people over there. You know, every once in a while I see them doing good things and it's really great. No. They would say, what on earth is happening in that place?
We've never seen anything like it. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of something like that. I want to be a part of something so powerful that we see in our generation in this lifetime. I want to see the world open their eyes and go, it is unmistakable that God is at work in those people's lives. Friends, I want to see revival. Do you want to see revival? I want to see it. I believe we can see it. Friends, our world, our time is ripe right now. And God is the one who says the word and who sends that kind of outpouring of his Holy Spirit in people's lives, in churches, in regions, in communities, in nations. And if nothing else today, friends, I'm praying today that this ignites a flame in our hearts for just that, that it starts with me, that it spreads out from what God's word has said today. We've read about revival today. I'm praying that we see a massive restoration of faith and that it can start with us today. I believe it starts right here. I believe it starts right here. Each of us taking responsibility, submitting ourselves to God's word, acknowledging him in worship, living lives of repentance, and taking steps of faith to obey him no matter what he asks us to do. Father God, I just, I pray that what we see in your word today would become a reality in our hearts today. I believe that you desire for your people to live in obedience. I believe that your desire is for your your people to live in repentance. I believe that your desire is for your people to rise up, to wake up, to passionately worship you in spirit and in truth in a way that we are consumed, completely consumed by your glory. Would you do a work in our hearts, Father, Would you move us? Would you revive us? Would you awaken us in the ways that you desire for each of us in this place today? Help us to respond in these ways, Lord, and we will see the walls of faith rebuilt and they will begin to be rebuilt spiritually in our lives right now. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, I just pray that you would help us to respond as you are calling us to respond today. Pray this in Jesus' name.